Welcome to the Oxpol Blogcast, where we'll be sharing research, analysis and experiences from members of the University of Oxford's Department of Politics and International Relations. I'm your host, Anastasia Bektimirova, an MPhil student at the department and a podcast editor here at the Oxpol Blog. This episode is part of the series Women in Politics – Perspectives from the Field and Academia. Over the next episodes, we are going to explore a feminist turn in political science and international relations research and try to better understand women's experiences in politics. Women are facing challenges at all levels of political participation, be it while pursuing elected office or being involved in political activism. While there is no doubt that barriers are present virtually anywhere in the world, the social environment, political culture and policies supporting and protecting women's political agency differ from country to country. It is these formal and informal factors, written and unwritten rules, which collectively can impede or promote greater women's representation in politics at any level that we are going to discuss on this episode, and our focus will be on Latin America. Our episode kicks off with Malu Gatto, who is an Associate Professor of Latin American Politics at the Institute of the Americas at University College London. We are going to zoom into the issue of gender quotas that is supposed to assist in achieving a greater balance in legislatures. The policy is present in 132 countries around the world, but the implementation varies greatly. Malu will help us understand why, in some Latin American countries, gender quotas are implemented more effectively than in others, and what the so-called informal political institutions have to do with it. Next, we will dive further into the interaction between formal and informal politics with Anna Patherick, who is an Associate Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Lemon Foundation Program for the Public Sector at Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Anna will give us a sense of how the gendered dimensions of corruption and related policies feed into the present state of women's political representation. Anna is taking a comparative approach, allowing us to place the observations from Latin America into a broader perspective. Later in this episode, we will turn our attention to civil society politics. You will hear from Julia Zalver, who is a research fellow at the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies and UNAM in Mexico. Julia's work focuses on women's mobilization in violent and high-risk contexts in Latin America. We are going to talk about women's political leadership primarily within the civil society and not among the traditional political elite. We are also going to discuss the rise to power of Francia Marquez, who has recently taken the post of vice president in Colombia, which offers a concrete illustration of a path from civil society activism to elected office. It's a packed and research-rich episode, so let's go to our first guest, Malu Gatto, who is an Associate Professor of Latin American Politics at the Institute of the Americas at University College London. Before we jump into discussing how the so-called informal institutions can mediate the effectiveness of gender quotas to increase women's political representation, I asked Malu to set the scene for us a little. My work has mostly focused on the formal and informal institutions that shape obstacles and opportunities for women's political representation in Latin America. 
when I'm mentioning formal institutions, I'm talking about the written rules of the game. And that means electoral laws. And so, for example, how votes are translated into seats or how and when campaigns can take place. What is the role of money in elections, etc.? And informal institutions are the unwritten procedures that shape elections, right? And so here we can think of how is it that party leaders select and prioritize specific candidates, how money and other types of campaign resources are distributed, for example. So my work mostly is looking at how formal and informal institutions interact with one another to promote or prevent women's representation from improving across the region. When I focus on formal institutions, most of my work has been on gender quotas, which is a type of policy that has been very popular, particularly in Latin America, although it has been popular around the world. When focusing on informal institutions, I've mostly been focusing on efforts to circumvent quota mandates. And so in other words, efforts made by parties and insiders to undermine what quotas are trying to do on paper, which is to improve women's political representation. When we look at women's political representation in Latin America, there has been radical transformation over the last 30 years. Argentina was the first country in the region to adopt a gender quota in 1991, reserving 30% of candidate nominations for women. And then countries around the region started adopting similar policies. As of now, all countries in the region except for Guatemala have adopted a gender quota. And Nicaragua, Mexico, and Costa Rica, as well as Cuba, top the 10 countries in the world with the greatest levels of women's political representation, with over 40% of national legislators being women. But this transformation has been quite unequal across the region. And Brazil, which is my main country of focus in my own research, places 144 in the world ranking of women's political representation legislatures. And so you can see here that there is quite a lot of variation across the region. And more recently, I've also been focusing on civil society efforts to overcome politicians and insiders' resistance to women's political representation in Brazil. And this has emerged from precisely this level of inequality that you see across the region. Many countries in Latin America haven't been able to radically transform the gender composition of their legislatures, while Brazil has stayed behind and after spending years looking at the resistance and efforts to promote women's representation within formal politics, I'm now looking at what's happening outside of formal politics to try to get formal politics to respond and change the reality of the gender composition of representation in Brazil. Malo, I'd like to talk more about gender quotas and why the effectiveness of this policy is not the same in all countries where it is present. To begin, could you shed a bit of light for us on what types of gender quotas are out there and which ones are most common in Latin America? Around the world, over 100 countries have adopted quotas, but there are different types of quotas. We can categorize them into three main types. And so we have voluntary party quotas, and these are adopted within parties and parties themselves decide to adopt them. And so there's no national legislation or no national guidance that parties need to take action to promote women's representation. This is essentially an internal party guideline monitored by parties themselves, and that become part of their candidate selection criteria. 
A second type of quota is reserved seats that guarantees that a certain number of women will always be occupying those seats in legislatures. Then the third type, which is the type that is common throughout Latin America, is what we call legislated candidate quotas. Now, these are national level laws that mandate that a certain share of candidates are women. That doesn't mean that those candidates are elected. If you have a reservation of seats, you guarantee that that's the number of women that are going to be in office. But if you reserve a certain proportion of candidacies, that doesn't necessarily ensure that women are going to be occupying those seats. Malo, let's now zoom into these legislated candidate quotas that, as you have just mentioned, are common in Latin American countries. This policy is effective in some places, but not the other. Under what conditions are the legislated candidate quotas successful in promoting greater representation of women in elected office? What is it about the design or implementation that makes this quota policy effective in translating candidates into seats? So here, let me get back to the example of Mexico, Nicaragua, and Costa Rica, which are the top 10 countries in the world in terms of women's representation. Well, first of all, they're what we call parity laws. And this has been something that has been evolving in Latin America. And so, as I said, the first gender quota reserved 30% of candidate nominations for women in Argentina. Well, now many countries in the region actually have parity laws, meaning that they reserve 50% of nominations for women. And so here we have a very high target. It's parity. The second thing that they have in common is what we call a zipper system. And this is something that you can apply to closed list elections. In closed list elections, parties present lists of candidates that are pre-ordered and voters vote for the party. The number of votes that a party gets then translates into the number of seats that they get. And then candidates who are ranked in that particular order take the seats depending on the number of seats that a party gets. So let's say that party's got a number of votes that's sufficient to elect two seats. And then the two top candidates on their party lists get elected. From that explanation, you can already get to that. The two top candidates, the people who are placing very high up on the list, have a higher chance of getting a seat than those that are placed at the bottom of the list. And so what zipper systems do is that they dictate how the list needs to be ordered according to the gender of candidates. And so zipper systems dictate that parties need to alternate between men and women in their candidate lists. And some of these policies, such as, for example, Costa Rica says that the alternation needs to not only be vertical, but also horizontal across districts. And so if you are putting a man on the top of one list, you have to put a woman on your party's next list. And so essentially that is something that promotes greater representation in election. And then finally, the other thing that they all have in common that is really important is strong sanctions for non-compliance. And so parties know that if they don't follow the quota mandate, they're going to suffer penalties. And in these cases here, it's rejection of the party lists that do not follow the principles of the quotas. Okay, thanks, Mal. That is clear. So what is it that can make a gender quota policy be less effective then? For example, Brazil is a peculiar case in this respect, isn't it? Even though the quota law was introduced in the country in 1998, little progress has been made since towards greater representation of women in legislatures. Brazil remains the country with the lowest percentage of women in the House of Representatives in the entire Latin American region. Mal, what is so special about Brazil? 
30% of vacancies in the House of Representatives is reserved for women. The policy is there, but why isn't it working like elsewhere? Similar to other quotas in Latin America, and so I mentioned, you know, these cases of Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Mexico, and these quotas are now very strong, but they didn't start out very strong. The original quota was very weak. The language implied that the quota was suggestive or only a guidance or no sanctions for non-compliance. The policy also inflated candidate lists, and so meaning that they reserved 30% of candidacies to women, but then they increased the number of nominations that parties could make to a particular position. There was no guidance or absolutely no mandates to secure the competitiveness of women's candidates. So we just talked about closed list proportional representation, but Brazil has an open list proportional representation system. What that means is that candidates compete for nominal votes against candidates from their own parties in order to ensure a high placement on their party lists. So that means that resources and party support really matters, right? Because candidates can be there on the party list, but not really be able to compete against other members of their parties in order to then secure the number of votes that would then place them highly on the party list. Essentially, it's not only sufficient to ensure that, say, 30% of women are candidates, but that they are actually competitive candidates. Now, over time, the quota design has somewhat improved, although all of the major proposals for strengthening the quota were rejected. Across time, the language was clarified to stipulate that quotas were mandatory. The Electoral Court also determined that party lists that didn't comply with the quota would be rejected, and that was in 2009. And since 2010 elections, compliance has improved. But it's really difficult to monitor compliance with the spirit of the law, and so not the letter of the law, ensuring that it's not only about nominating 30% of women, but it's ensuring that these women have the conditions to run. The point here overall was that the gender quota in Brazil doesn't have the necessary components to both punish parties that do not comply with the letter, but particularly the spirit of the law, and that whilst other countries have been able to adapt quota legislation to ensure that parties cannot rely on loopholes and use informal institutions to circumvent the quota. In Brazil, that is still an ongoing process. Thanks, Malo. That now makes sense. Moving on, in your 2021 Party Politics article, which will be linked in the show notes, you refer to the so-called phantom candidates, who enter the elections without the true intention of winning the office, but to serve other interests instead. What is the purpose of such candidates, and in what ways can they undermine women's chances for electoral success and benefit male candidates instead? I really like talking about phantom candidates because I think that they illustrate informal institutions at play. So phantom candidates are candidates that are on party lists for the purposes of complying with gender quotas, but are not candidates in practice. And so they're not running campaigns, meaning that they have no chances of being elected. And again, remember that in Brazil, candidates need to attract nominal votes. And so they can't just be candidates, right? They need to be actively campaigning to attract votes, to get a high placement on the party list. These phantom candidates, it's hard to pick up who they are because they are the product of an informal institution. And informal institutions are inherently difficult to capture because they are unwritten procedures, in this case, used to undermine a formal law. So it's not like, for example, you can download a list of candidates and there's going to be a column there saying, this is a phantom candidate, right? No. 
We know from anecdotal evidence, for example, that phantom candidates are people who have been party members, but didn't necessarily want to be candidates or that perhaps wanted to be candidates in the future. But then parties don't put them up as real candidates, but use their candidates as a form of service. And so essentially it's like, oh, do this now. And then in the future, we will actually nominate you effectively and actively for candidacy. But sometimes these are people who haven't had long trajectories in parties. It could be people related to party members or in more extreme cases, people who didn't even know that they were being put in party lists as candidates. The implications of that is that these are women then who are complying to the law, but then not increasing competition for men and men incumbents. And so essentially, you're not really transforming the dynamics of elections, but also you're not threatening the status quo and men's status in politics. Based on what you have just described, the presence of phantom candidates is not that easy to capture. So it's probably quite challenging to study the effects they bring. So how do you operationalize phantom candidates in your work? In this particular paper by Kristen Wiley and I, following her previous work with Los Santos and Marcelino in 2019, and we're classifying these phantom candidates as those who secured no more than 1% of the votes of the vote share of the last person to get elected in their state. And so essentially that's how we are operationalizing it. But if we're thinking more broadly in terms of what it means, it is essentially trying to observe something that is inherently non-observable. It's trying to see, well, okay, if this is happening, what, what would be the observable implications of that? And that is how we're picking up on the phantom candidates. Right, I see. And now looking beyond phantom candidates, what are some other ways in which the success of formally established gender quotas can be undermined? What does the evidence from other Latin American countries suggest? So informal institutions are responding to incentives that are imposed by these formal institutions. What that means is that they're context specific. And so given the electoral rules in Brazil and the gender quota that was instituted in Brazil, parties are responding to that. And so in other countries, the use of informal institutions responds to their own set of electoral rules and the quota that was adopted within those systems. And so just to give you an example, it's early days of the Mexican gender quota where parties would nominate women as main candidates and men as suplentes and so as alternates. And then after the election, they would ask women to step down so that men would take office. And this was because in the early days of the gender quota in Mexico, a loophole was that it didn't stipulate that the quota also applied to alternate candidates. And so essentially what parties could do was to then not apply the quota to these alternates, which are supposed to then step in when the main candidates step down. And so basically that was one way to maintain the status quo of male dominance in parliaments even after the adoption of the gender quota. Another way to essentially follow the letter of the law without following the spirit of the law is seen in Costa Rica and in other countries in their early days of gender quotas whereby the quotas didn't specify the placement in candidate lists and essentially parties would comply with the quotas by nominating women to the bottom of lists. These show how insiders who have knowledge of the formal rules of the game use these rules 
to their advantage by adapting to changes that seek to change the status quo, in this case, male dominance, essentially. And now, looking beyond gender quotas, what are other challenges to women's political representation in Latin America? At the end of the day, quotas should be part of a comprehensive set of actions to diversify participation, right? Quotas target the underrepresentation of women in its ultimate expression, but not the root of political inequality itself. What are some of the processes of change that are needed in order to tackle the causes of women's underrepresentation? That's a really interesting question, and I think that this is a question that we're still grappling with, even in countries that have reached parity or close to parity representation. Thus far, we have talked about women's descriptive representation, which is their presence in political office, but we haven't really spoken about what is it that they do or how is it that they prevent it from acting once in office. Masculinist bias in procedures and processes are still in place in many countries, and so that ranges from explicit exclusion, for example, lack of policies on maternity leave or lack of women's bathroom in congressional room, which was the case in Brazil in the Senate until 2015, which is a very obvious form of exclusion in politics. This is a physical reminder that women don't belong in that space, that that space was not created for them. Where a lot of the conversation is right now in terms of the challenges to women's full incorporation into politics, even in countries where women's descriptive representation has reached parity, is gendered patterns of political violence before as well as after elections. This means threat to women's well-being and safety during campaigns that not only impact women who are campaigning, but also impact aspirations of other women who fear that becoming involved in politics means online and street harassment, but also other types of threats to their physical and mental well-being, also threats to women's activities as politicians. And so we have too many cases across the region of sexual harassment and both verbal and physical violence that women are experiencing even after they become politicians and that are perpetrated both by members of other parties, so opposition, as well as members of their own parties. And of course, these dynamics are not only gendered, but also racialized. My ongoing research in Brazil shows that Afro-Brazilian women and that trans women are reporting higher rates of violence, even within their own parties during the campaign process. This impacts women's descriptive representation, looking at both the supply of women, because there's also indication that this is impacting aspirations, as well as when they get to politics, how is it that their activity is being limited, but then also how long do women stay in politics? And we have examples from Brazil of two very prominent women, Aurea Carolina, as well as Manuela Davila, who have very recently declared that they will no longer run for formal politics, at least for now, because of gender-based violence threatening their own lives as well as their families. We continue to look beyond the descriptive representation of women with our next guest, Anna Patrick, who is an associate professor of public policy at Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford. To begin, I asked Anna to tell us more about the aspects of women's political representation that her research has been focusing on, and what it is that she finds particularly interesting when studying Latin American countries. 
Latin America is really fertile ground to investigate women's representation. Latin America tends to be a global leader on these kind of regional averages for women's descriptive representation. So that's interesting of itself. But Latin America is also kind of a giant mixture, if you like, of the variation that we see across the world. You actually see some countries, like Cuba, Mexico and Nicaragua, have actually more than half of their parliaments that are women at the moment. But then you see countries like Brazil, there are 10 countries with less than 20% of their parliaments that are women. And Brazil tends to be one of the countries among the global lowest on this measure. And that's why I study it. My work focuses on stereotyping or more precisely in political science terms, thinking about symbolic representation. Descriptive representation would be what I just spoke about, in simple terms, headcounts. Symbolic is much more about how women are viewed and imagined. And so what goes on in parties, I find really important to how women fare in politics. In my thesis, for my DPhil, I looked at these two things, stereotyping and what's going on inside parties. And in particular, how we might adapt the main model for analysing how women fare in formal politics. So it works in countries like Brazil, where parties are super messy. They're not just strongly institutionalised, they're weakly institutionalised. And that really affects how women progress within parties, which you need to do if you're ever going to be elected. And the reason I think this is so important is that time after time, we see research coming through that show that voters aren't the reason why women aren't getting power around the world. My work has shown this, but lots of other people's work has shown it. And I just read a paper about Australia showing the same thing. If anything, voters tend to have a pro-female bias. And that's often because they link ideas of masculinity with things like corruption that they don't like. So it's what goes on inside parties that really matters, even though we know that other things, such as electoral systems, campaign financing and so on, all linked parties in their own right have big influences on how women fare. Anna, in your research, you have focused quite a lot on corruption as a barrier to greater representation of women in politics. Could you perhaps explain this link a little? In what ways does corruption impede women's access to political life and their rise to high-level roles in politics? Yes, so if we stand back first of all and think about women in society before they step up and try and become political leaders, or some of them, those who want to do, we can say that Broadly speaking, corruption can reinforce or exaggerate existing inequalities, including gender inequalities. Corruption is usually something that those who already have access to power gain from and those that don't are hit hard by. There are lots of studies that show that corruption in parties or more broadly in organisations structured by patronage tends to keep women out of power. And that's because they tend to involve kind of in-group networks. And you have to do well in these networks to access power. And the ways of doing well often involve demonstrating that you have certain attributes. And these tend to be quite masculine attributes. And this is important because if you're trying to do something a little bit dodgy in a group, then you need to have really strong in-group trust, this kind of social bonding going on. And if the means of doing that bonding is to demonstrate some of these very hyper-masculine attributes, then men who don't conform to those and women per se would generally be left out. There's actually a really nice study 
Mariella Schwartz that Debbie looks at parties in Argentina, clientelistic parties. And she looked at all the stages of progression towards becoming the municipal councillor. And she basically showed a smaller proportion of women at each stage of progression. And that's because women were operating in the clientelistic networks as, as kind of caring problem solvers, doing things that take a lot of time, like providing care for children, the elderly, those kinds of favours. Whereas the men were doing things like fixing roads and organising groups of people to go and protest over something. So stuff that is qualifying for progression in the eyes of the party elites, but very much male characteristic stuff, traditionally male stereotypes. And let's take a zoom out perspective here for a moment. Corruption scandals are commonplace throughout the world. Where do Latin American countries stand in comparison to other parts of the world? It's very hard to say how countries rank. And this is because, first of all, scholars who study corruption really go round and round and round trying to define corruption. And then measuring it is super difficult. So, for example, if you take the Corruption Perceptions Index, which is the most widely known measure of corruption around the world, which has a lot of problems with it, the UK is number 11 at the moment. Switzerland is number seven. And we know that these are the countries where money laundering is pretty easy, whereas Argentina and Brazil are equal 96th in the world. So I think that's around the middle or a bit below the middle, implying they're not very good. But it entirely depends on the kind of corruption that you're sensitive to in your measure. And even then, I'm a little sceptical of these things, because if you can first of all agree on your definition, then agree on what you're going to measure, you then have the problem that most people who really know about what's going on are all trying to hide it from you. So it's kind of hard to measure corruption in general. Okay, so how do you personally get around this challenge? How do you conceptualize corruption in your own work? That's a really good question. I tend to think of different forms of corruption. I try and not think of corruption as a single word because it's very discrete and very different kinds of activity. I actually try and avoid using it as a collective noun. So I would think of different kinds. So for example, bribery as distinct from vote buying, as distinct from collusive practices to bring down the price of something. So these are all very, very different kinds of activity. Although it's not conceptually as neat as it could be, there's really good work done by someone called Monica Bohr in Gothenburg in Sweden, who argues that we should think far more about need corruption versus greed corruption. So a lot of the laws around bribery, for example, punish the person paying the bribe and the person receiving the bribe. Well, that's a very different moral context if you're paying a bribe to get your business special access to something versus if you need to pay a bribe to get your kids some medicine. One is greed, one is need. I'm just going to say it's pretty difficult, but I try not to use the word corruption as a refresh term. And that totally makes sense. And against the backdrop of what we have spoken about so far, it's interesting that conventional gender stereotypes tend to portray female politicians as more ethical, honest and trustworthy than male politicians. Isn't this expectation supposed to help female politicians mitigate perceptions of fraud and corruption, helping them gain extra points in the political leadership game? But definitely. So in personalistic systems or person-centered systems as opposed to party-centered systems, you would expect stereotypes to have a stronger influence right, on who gets to be in power. 
in my ankle thesis going back a long way, I started looking at this question and I thought that corruption scandals involving male politicians may provide a kind of boost to women seeking power in municipalities in Brazil. The reason that I studied Brazil, other than it has not many women in power and hugely vast range of levels of corruption around the country, is that it solved the problem of measurements for me, which we just spoke about. When I was fishing around for something to do for my MPhil, I found this experiment, sort of the anti-corruption agency in Brazil had limited resources to audit municipalities. So what it did, it had a lottery, which was on the national TV. They put effectively ping pong balls in kind of lottery turbines. As you were to win cash prizes, they pulled out 60 balls roughly per month at the beginning. And on each ball, there was a number referring to a municipality. And so the municipality selected would get an audit within the week. In a way, this is great. They could show that they were being fair because it was completely randomised when they had limited resources to do all of the municipalities. But from a research point of view, this is fantastic. You've got a group of municipalities that's treated with revelations of true corruption. And you have a group of municipalities which no one knows how much corruption there is. And so what I looked at was whether women were doing better in the municipalities where there'd been these corruption scandals. And I'd found that, yes, they do do better. So if the scandal is in the second half of the electoral cycle, then the more money it involved, the more vote gains that women got. I also saw this boost to women being selected to run for mayor. And that it was no longer significant after the date where you can no longer register a new candidate. So what's really interesting about these findings is that women only really benefited where there were AM radio stations. So it was only when you split the sample into municipalities with AM radio stations where citizens learn about the contents of the audits that women got more votes and were more likely to be candidates. And this fits really well with previous work that has looked at these randomised audits because the first pieces of research wanted to know whether incumbents that were corrupt got kicked out. And the first people to work on this found that that was only the case where there were AM radio stations in the municipalities again, where voters knew about the corruption, which completely makes sense. Of course, it's associational because it's big number stats rather than causal, but at least the narrative in my head is a very neat little story and I backed it up with some case studies showing that it seems pretty plausible. Indeed, that sounds like a fantastic case for an interesting research design. Anna, as you have mentioned, corruption can take many forms, including the gender-specific types, which are disproportionately experienced by women, such as sexual corruption, where sexual favours are used as a currency. At the same time, this often gets overlooked due to the social taboo that tends to be associated with sex crimes and the stigmatization of victims who speak up. In the report on the gender dimensions of corruption, which you have prepared for the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, and which will be linked in the episode notes, you address the topic of sexual corruption. What insights are available to us about this form of corruption? It's only very recently that we've got the slightest insight into how common this is. I think 2019 was the first time that the Latin America Regional Office of Transparency International tried to start asking people about this. And there's a few focus groups about it in the water sector in South Africa and Colombia, but really not much at all. It was, for those reasons, it was kind of a major focus of what I included in the UNODC report, because the indication is that it's very, very widespread. 
And also that there's a really strong power dynamic involved when this currency of corruption is used. For example, it tends to be the person providing sexual favours who has much lower power than the person asking for the, effectively the bribe. And the reason it's really important to talk about with policymakers is it tends to fall outside of laws that people might casually think would cover it. Or even by the letter of the law, sometimes they do cover it. So, for example, anti-bribery laws are usually phrased in a way that doesn't mean that the currency of the bribe has to be monetary. But they're interpreted by courts and by prosecutors in this way. And often there's a lot of confusion. Uh, there's a, some work done in Tunisia asking judges about whether a sexual favour would count as a bribe. And they were completely confused. Half sort of said yes and half sort of said no, even though the letter of the law would suggest it is included. And then you have your sexual harassment laws, which again, the letter of the law might suggest that it should include these cases. But often there are cases where the quid pro quo elements, maybe the woman suggested it. It tends to be on the very hard to prosecute end of things, even though I think anybody you talk to about the subject would say that it should be illegal, that this should be banned. So at the moment, it's a very fast moving topic. There are two approaches that policymakers are developing around the world. One is to create entirely new laws, so very specific to sexual corruption. And even if existing laws by the letter of the laws cover this, there's an argument there. So hate crimes, for example, are already covered by other legislations. But we have special rules about hate crime to draw attention to the fact that this should be easy to prosecute. Right? Brazil has currently got some legislation which has gone through the committee stage and might actually hit the floor of the House very soon. And then the other approach is what Nigeria is doing, and that is to say, OK, well, it is covered by the letter of the law, but it's not working. So what we need to do is entirely rethink how we prosecute this. We need to treat victims entirely differently. We need specially trained officers involved in investigating and prosecuting these kinds of activities. That's really interesting, Kanda. And it's clear that as more insights emerge, more policy actions will be taken in response to this. And now let's move to the possible ways to deal with the corruption problem at large. For example, there are studies looking at the correlation between the levels of corruption and women's representation in politics that find that corruption tends to be lower in the countries with a greater share of women occupying political positions. Does women's representation in politics indeed lead to less corruption? Or do women just have fewer opportunities to be corrupt? What does the evidence from Latin American countries suggest about this? Like all things in political science, the answer is it depends. And you're right. So this is actually how the field of gender corruption was motivated around the turn of the century by showing these correlations around the world. But the more that people dug into the correlations, the more it became clear that this was not always the case. So, for example, if you plot the chart you were just talking about of women in parliament and levels of corruption, and you see a neat correlation in a simple sense. If you do that for European countries, you see the same pattern. But then if you instead plot for the same countries, the proportion of women in the bureaucracy and levels of corruption, you see a complete flat line. There's no association whatsoever. And you can also do that kind of fiddling around with what's on the graph by looking at democracies and autocracies, by looking at parliamentary systems and presidential systems. And all in all, 
when you find or don't find these patterns, the message coming out of all of these analyses is essentially to suggest that, first of all, there's nothing to do with anything intrinsic here. It's context dependent. That's the simple message. So if you think that bureaucracies are places where impartiality is the desired cultural norm, there's meritocratic examinations, et cetera, et cetera. The role that gender stereotypes play in structuring how the organisation works is going to be really damped down compared to winning a seat in the parliament where you've got to be elected, you've got to do well in the party and so on. And you have to probably play to stereotypes. And there are usually strong injunctive stereotypes or expectations that women shouldn't be corrupt and therefore stronger social sanctioning if you are corrupt that put women off being involved in corruption in that context. I really do want to labour the point that there's nothing intrinsic. And when people ask me about this, I point to two things. So one is there's an experiment, which is really cool. It was done in the US and in Burkina Faso. And it asked people to mark exam papers. And on the 11th paper, there was a bribe and basically said, give this one loads of good marks. And the women and men in both countries were equally corrupt until you said, actually, there's now going to be some sort of monitoring. And then in both countries, the women were less corrupt than the men. So it's this expectation of stronger social sanctioning that seems to be having the effect. The other thing that I really like is this work on risk-taking in some societies in India where women have more power than men. And you find that in those places, women are more risk-embracing than men. And you just see all the reverse patterns. So there's nothing very intrinsic going on. It's very much about the broader social context. Evidence from Latin America. Well, this is where I might confuse you a little bit. We see in Brazilian municipalities that female mayors spend more of the budget on maternal health. And to create that money, they have to cut corruption. And you can actually see the effects in how well infant survival is doing. And we also see, to swing back to Europe, that if you look at women's representation in European councils, that women cut corruption in areas of the state that women access more than men, in healthcare, in education. They don't do it in policing, which is really interesting. And that's an area of the state where men interact usually more. And so, yes, women are cleaner in a naive sense, but I think what's really going on is women have agency when they get into power. And self-interest. Yes, that's clear. At the same time, what are the conditions under which supporting women's greater participation in politics can be an effective part of the strategy in the fight against corruption? I think it's effective where policies to encourage women's participation in politics draw in women who are outside of our pre-existing corruption networks. There's some work from Tanzania on gender quotas, and it suggests that quotas aren't doing anything to reduce corruption. But it also shows that the women who are getting in through the quotas are connected to the pre-existing political networks where you effectively gain access to them through male power, through being the daughter of, the wife of, or, or whatever it is. And there's some work from Monica Bohr on and Nick Charon on France very recently looking at when women become mayor in French municipalities. And this shows that early on women are cleaner and then if they stay in power, then they stop being cleaner. And so what's going on here is they're gaining access to the network they're being allowed in probably. I think all of these policies work if they bring in outsiders, disruptors to corrupt networks. And women happen to often be outsiders to the networks, but it's not because they're women per se. 
The effect of disruptors can be observed in many other contexts too, which is something that we're going to address in the conversation with our next guest, Julia Zalber, who is a research fellow at the Oxford School of Global and Area Studies and UNAM in Mexico. The type of political agency that we're going to talk about in this part of the episode is civil society activism. To begin, I asked Julia about the challenges associated with this form of political participation that her research has focused on. My research has focused less on formal politics and more on civil society politics. I look at what I call high-risk feminism, which is where women engage in activism to make demands for gender justice, despite the high risks of threats, violence, attacks, or even murder associated with doing so. And I would say that the barriers actually are similar between formal politics and civil society politics in many ways. One of the overarching barriers, I think we could say, is machismo, which is an expression of masculinity in which men and women have very specific gender roles. So men are in charge of making money, being outside the house, participating publicly, whereas women's roles are more relegated to taking care of the home, taking care of children, cooking, cleaning, um, and not participating publicly. This means that there's a, a place, a time and a place and a space where women are supposed to be and where they're not supposed to be. And so by participating politically, either in formal politics or taking to the streets in civil society organizations, the social networks, doing sit-ins or marches, using strategic litigation, engaging all of these different social movement tactics to make demands for their rights. They're seen as transgressing this logic of machismo that means that they're not behaving as they should. So what that does is it exposes them to further risk. And particularly in areas where I work, where we see armed conflict, the presence of criminal organizations, we see this heightened dynamic of machismo or what Kimberly Titan might talk about as militarized masculinity where those gender norms about where women are supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing are exacerbated. And so participating in any kind of political activism is a very transgressive act in that sense. Other barriers which are absolutely important as well is if we think about inequality, we can think about what women are supposed to do again in terms of this machismo. So they're supposed to be at home taking care of children, um, in charge of their education, in charge of preparing food. So that means that there's a real time suck on women. And so their ability to leave the home, leave the care responsibilities that they have to engage in this activism isn't always possible for them. And then again, thinking intersectionally, if we have women who are living in rural areas, access to transport, finances to take the bus to the nearby town to participate may not be easy. Having access to a smartphone so that they can communicate in these networks and organizations of women, uh, having access to data and internet, all of these structural barriers, which also put themselves in the way to women's political activism. That being said, what we can see is that around the region, and obviously it differs depending on the country and the specific dynamics, that there are women from all walks of life who do decide to participate in different kinds of social movements, different kinds of political activism as well. Julia, could you now give us a sense of the issues and experiences that prompt women to mobilize and if there is a way to categorize the forms of such political activism? That very much depends on the context that they're in, the country that they're in, their location in society. So if they're a rural woman or an Afro-Colombian woman or an indigenous Brazilian woman or a woman with disabilities in Central America, all of these different intersecting identities are going to inform the sorts of issues that are really important to them. 
But I would say that broadly speaking, they do break down into different categories. And so we can see, for example, that some women mobilize with other women and allies as feminists. So that would generally be around women's rights, for anti-violence rights, for anti-femicide rights, pro-sexual and reproductive rights, pro-abortion rights. And then we also see women mobilizing in mixed organizations. That might, for example, be around environmental rights and protections against conflict for Indigenous and Afro-Latino rights, for victims' rights. In all of these different settings or these different sectors, perhaps, we see that there are both organizations of women who are choosing to mobilize as women, not always for women's rights, but sometimes for other rights. And then also in mixed organizations where they happen to be women in a combined group of men and women pushing for progressive rights. The other thing I would say is that they're not always pushing for the codification of their rights, which I've spoken about. A lot of the Latin American countries that I work in do have a really rich history of having quite progressive laws and court sentences and legal precedents, which means that on paper, the rights that they're pushing for do exist. But then when it comes to their actual implementation, there's often a gap. So then we might see mobilization against corruption or against impunity or against a judiciary that refuses to implement specific laws or build off what exists on paper. In Mexico, for example, where I currently am based, I'm working with women who are mobilizing in colectivos to look for family members who've been disappeared in the context of Mexico's war on drugs. I've also been working with Indigenous women who are working to prevent violence in their communities. I've also been working with other women who are protesting these huge international organization, international company, plus government collaborations, which are seeking to set up mega projects in their homelands, which would represent, in most cases, environmental destruction and either the displacement or the change in the ways of life for the communities that live there. In Colombia, for example, I work with women who are both anti-conflict, who are protesting and mobilizing against the conflict and conflict-related gender-based violence. I've worked with women who are mobilizing for sexual and reproductive rights, women who are looking to promote women's economic empowerment. Uh, so we can see that, that in all of the different countries, there are these different categories of mobilization of how women choose to engage politically from civil society. Julia, I'm thinking of the risks that pose a challenge to women involved in these political and social movements, which you have mentioned a variety of, such as gender-based violence. What about party politics? How do the risks faced by women engaging politically from civil society compare to the risks women in party politics are facing? The risks may be the same and they may be different. And I would say that they may be different because the women who are engaging in party politics are usually whiter, they're usually more elite, they're usually coming from more educational backgrounds, they're usually more urban. This is not always the case. This is what I was referring to earlier when I talked about that participation without necessarily representing the diversity of women's identities within party politics. However, the underlying dynamic or thread is that women are not only targeted for their policies, but also for their identities. So even if these are more elite, wider, more educated, more urban, more visible women, it's not just that they're, for example, pursuing a new law or engaging in a different kind of policy. It's that they're women who are doing so, which is still within this context of machismo seen as a transgression. So it may mean that they face different kinds of violence. Those in party politics aren't necessarily safer. So we can think, for example, about Marielle Franco in Brazil, who was murdered while she was participating within an elected political 
critical role in Rio de Janeiro. Or we can think about the work of Juliana Restrepo Sanin, who works on violence against women politicians in Colombia, in Bolivia, and in Mexico. What I would say, though, is that if we're talking about the activists in civil society, the women that I work with, they're sometimes putting themselves in opposition to other stakeholders, other actors in different levels of power, and some are going to be more violent than others. So, for example, if we think about Berta Cáceres in Honduras, who was murdered a few years ago as she was protesting the building of a mega project, we saw that she was fighting against multinational companies, the Honduran security forces, others who didn't want her not only to kind of be a stone in the shoe or an annoyance against the building of this dam, but also in large part saw that as a woman who was leading this movement, she was transgressing those acceptable gender norms. And so I would say that while the risks are similar in terms of where they're coming from, from this backlash of pushing back against women who are sticking their necks out or behaving in ways that they're not supposed to, uh, given this overlying level of machismo or of masculinized power dynamics, but also we're seeing that in party politics versus in civil society politics, there may be different levels of visibility or invisibility, protection or lack of protection. And then the stakes are frankly higher in some cases, I would argue. From my experience working with civil society activists, one of the factors that they bring up to me a lot, that lack of protection, even from institutions and organizations within the state that are supposed to protect them. Mm -hmm. Yes, that makes sense. Julia, now turning to your own book, which is called High-Risk Feminism in Colombia, which has recently come out and which will be linked in the show notes. In the book, you develop a high-risk feminism framework which advances social movement theories in a gender-sensitive direction. In what ways does your framework allow to better understand women's political mobilization? The main research question that my book departs from is why, when the risks of mobilizing could be physical violence, attacks, threats, even death, would women choose to do so anyway? Why would anyone or how could anyone justify participating in this incredibly high-risk activism? And what I show is how certain charismatic leaders are able to frame the risks of mobilizing versus not mobilizing. So while there is a risk differential in terms of mobilizing versus not mobilizing, being active in an organization versus staying at home, that differential can be balanced out when we think about the benefits that women can receive from joining a group, which go everywhere from feelings of solidarity, the ability to work together to heal and overcome these psychological traumas, to coming together as a group and getting collective reparations, or applying to international organizations for money and funding and resources. What these leaders are able to do is they're able to shape a vision of the future and encourage women to frame their experiences in terms of anger and outrage and justice rather than fear. And that's where we see women mobilizing. This framework effectively holds up a gender lens to the way that we study high-risk collective action and explaining why women may be willing to expose themselves to the risks of mobilization in a way that's totally reasonable and justifiable. And so the work I do in terms of threat framing in comparison to potential benefits allows us to understand how women justify their decisions to mobilize for a more gender-just world. 
And I would say that while my work is about what I call high-risk feminism, this pursuit of gender justice, this pursuit of the actual application and implementation of women's rights within Colombia, it does travel in that I think that it allows us to understand gendered high-risk collective action more broadly as well. So for example, a paper that I've just written about the case of the colectivos that I was working with in Veracruz in Mexico highlights how the women family members whose lucha, whose struggle is not about gender justice, it's about getting justice for their disappeared children, how they're also having to overcome very gendered barriers when it comes to mobilizing in their communities, which are controlled by this hyper-violent state and also drug trafficking and other criminal organizations. So I think that it can travel and I'd be really interested to see how this gendered framework around high-risk collective action can be used in other cases of political mobilization. Julia, and now I'd like to turn to one more example to further illustrate what we have already talked about. A few months ago, Colombia saw Francia Marquez, the country's first black vice president, enter office. From working as a mate to becoming an award-winning environmental activist, fighting for the rights of Afro-Colombian communities and working to protect their land, and finally to becoming Colombia's vice president, is quite an extraordinary journey and a true story of a woman reaching political leadership while defying the odds and stereotypes. Could you tell our listeners why Marquez's story is so special and what its broader significance for women's political agency and political representation? Absolutely. I love to speak about Francia Marquez. Um, so in Colombia, political power has traditionally been held by the exact same political, social and economic elite who are the same families, the same centralized group of people in the country's major cities in Bogotá, in Medellín, in Barranquilla and others. And so usually political power is effectively held on to with the tightest grip by these political families. And so Marquez, as you mentioned, the fact that she is poor, she comes from an incredibly rural area, very conflict-affected area. Uh, she is Afro-Colombian. She's a single mother. She worked um, as a domestic employee, but she managed, despite all of these barriers, as I mentioned, to really push herself forward and through her dedication, through her vision of a more just future, Future, fight within civil society for the rights of her community. She's fought and she's worked and struggled within the environmental sphere. She has worked for women's rights. She's worked for Afro-Colombian women's rights. And so she actually says that she speaks for the nobodies of Colombia. And effectively what she represents is this massive disruption of the status quo. People who had never come out to vote before came out and voted for her because they saw themselves in her. And they heard as she spoke, not only that she was paying lip service, to their experiences and their struggles, but also that she had lived their experiences and struggled and that she would hopefully be this reliable and dedicated leader who could bring these struggles to the fore in these high positions of political power. We've seen violence, um, environmental degradation, inequality increase significantly, particularly in communities like the one that Francia Marquez comes from. And so coming with this promise of peace and coming with this promise of actually going to these communities, listening to their voices, making them heard and taking those issues to this very centralized hall of power in Bogota is an incredible moment of hope for those who voted for her. It will hopefully also mean that women's perspective and experiences, not just elite women, white women, educated women, but also women who look and sound and speak and live and experience like Francia has, will be brought to these decision-making spaces and will be taken seriously. 
I want to put the caveat in that despite this incredibly exciting election, that's not necessarily to say that all of the campaign promises will translate into policy and action. We know that there's always a difference when it comes to what's promised during campaigns versus what's actually feasible in a system where there are blocks, where there are others who aren't necessarily in agreement. But I think that symbolically that Francia Marquez has got as far as she has and that she has decided to take all of what she's learned from her civil society mobilizing and from her life story to to this very high ranking and powerful position, if nothing else is a real beacon for a brighter future. That's all we have time for today. Many thanks to all our guests for bringing so much insight to this episode. Thanks for listening to the Oxpol blogcast. Be sure to keep your eyes on the Oxpol blog at blog.politics.ox.ac.uk to keep updated on the latest articles and podcasts from the blog.